It's Tuesday, June 16th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I am not Mokhtar Bell Mokhtar. The terrorist mastermind is now, well, now we're told he's the late terrorist mastermind thanks to a U.S. airstrike within Libya. But to be clear, Mokhtar Bell Mokhtar has been reported dead more often than a Fagoda. He is a fascinating terrorist because of a few things. One, he's Algerian. He started off as pretty much a mainstream Algerian rebel as far as Algerian rebels go. But he understood the power of spectacle, given that he, quote, employed a three-foot, six-inch axe-wielding dwarf named Muhammad the Dwarf to slit the throats of 33 men, women, and children and behead them with an axe in public as part of his efforts to impose strict Islamic government in Algeria. Oh, and Mokhtar Belmokhtar loved Osama bin Laden. He named his son Osama, named his group Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, financed it by smuggling, lots of cigarette smuggling, earning him the nickname the Marlboro Man. They also called him One Eye because of a shrapnel wound and terrorist naming conventions that come up with monikers like Muhammad the Dwarf. But Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb grew weary of One Eye. In fact, they wrote him a rebuke a poor workplace evaluation, if you will. According to the AP, his fellow terrorists complained that he, quote, didn't answer his phone when they called and failed to turn in his expense reports. He also gave everyone nicknames like Stretch and Super Stretch. Okay, that last part's not true. He did found a splinter group, but he really bungled the brand management aspect when he named it the Salafist Group for Combat and Preaching. Pick one. Pick one, I say. Come on. It's the combat you're going to want to emphasize. The preaching, oh, come on. You get that everywhere. I mean, in a way, isn't the combat sort of your pulpit? Oh, I know, I know. Mokhtar, Bel Mokhtar, no doubt argued. No, no, no. It's like a chocolate in your peanut butter, peanut butter in your chocolate sitch. It's two great things that go great together. No. People want their preaching and they want their combat, but they don't want their preaching mixed up with their combat. Didn't the McDLT teach us anything? Mokhtar Bel Mokhtar did go on to pull off that Algerian gas field hostage crisis. They took over 800 hostages. 40 or so were killed during a rescue attempt that more or less worked. More combat, less preaching, I say. But eventually, Mokhtar Bel Mokhtar did go on to pull off that Algerian gas field thing where they, they took 800 hostages and 40 or so were killed during a rescue attempt. More combat, less preaching, I say. But eventually, Bel Mokhtar was killed, and not by preaching. The Libya Herald reports he was among seven killed by U.S. airstrikes a couple days ago. As for Mohammed the Dwarf, he changed his name to Grumpy and spent his retirement touring with Kid Rock. Okay, that's not true either. On the show today, I spiel about Rachel Dolezal. Don't worry, I can explain everything. But first, the history of slavery is the first topic tackled in a Slate Academy which includes surprising stories and fascinating contemplations of the institution that still defines much of the American experience. The new Slate Academy, which is what we're calling this learning endeavor, is called A History of American Slavery. And it's being done by Rebecca Onion, who is Slate's history writer, and Jamel Bowie, title staff writer. If you know Jamel, so, so much more. Hello, guys. Howdy. 
Hi, Mike. Hi. So it seems when history, when a chapter in history starts getting hot again or people start looking at it, it's usually from one of a few reasons. There could be an anniversary. There could be a pop cultural treatment of this history, or there could be an exciting new discovery of a primary text. There is the anniversary of the end of the Civil War, but I think that driving this discussion are movies like Django, but especially 12 Years a Slave. I was born a free man, lived with my family in New York. Be good for your mother. Until the day I was deceived. To Solomon. Kidnapped, sold into slavery. How much of this is either directly correcting or commenting notions on the movie 12 Years a Slave or the kind of discussion that arose out of that? The one connection I would make is that there is sort of a like a timelessness to the way that we think about slavery. Like uh, one of the people that we interviewed, Ira Berlin, for our first episode, who's a sort of a grand scholar in slavery, he says something like, a, you know, people think about slavery as sort of all happening on a cotton plantation in the Deep South and all happening in about between 1840 and 1860, um, which is sort of the exact situation with 12 Years a Slave. We're hoping with our series to show that slavery had so many different dimensions. And depending on where it happened in time and place, it happened in such different ways. We hope to explore a more sort of fully realized history of it. You know, Anthony Johnson is not simply a unicorn. He's not simply one of a kind in this society. There are many people like him, and they exist in such numbers that they force people to think differently about the question of slavery and the question of race. That's a lot different than it is on a plantation in Alabama, you know, in 1830. Well, the Ira Berlin conversation, which was episode one, was really eye-opening to me. I mean, you promised, hey, we'll uh, make you think about the institution in ways you haven't before. And right off the bat, it's the story of one of the first black people in America, and he was uh, a slave at the time, an enslaved person in Jamestown, and then he bought his freedom, and that sort of thing wouldn't be possible years later. And then, Jamel, you get to a point where you essentially question, did racism cause slavery, or did slavery cause racism? And that, I thought, was fascinating. I'd never thought about that before. That is one of those insights that I I myself only kind of came to like two years ago because it does very much run counter to how we think of these things. We, we, we In addition to thinking of slavery as kind of timeless, we think of racism as kind of timeless because we, based on the definitely true insight that people have always found ways to d- divide themselves and divide each other and, and uh, subjugate each other. But one of the interesting things in my reading and in that conversation and in sort of learning more about very, very specifically early Virginia, you come to see that the first African indentured servants weren't thought of as black necessarily. They didn't come with the stereotypes and prejudices that we associate with racism today or 200 years ago didn't really exist then. I mean, that itself raises the question, well, how did they get there? And and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this because it's one of the things I was really hoping listeners would get from this first episode um, was to think about, you know, the degree to which the fact of being enslaved drove the enslavers to try to rationalize it mm-hmm. and figure out a way to themselves to say, well, this is why this is right. And this is why this is how we should be doing things. And 
in that, I think you pretty clearly see that racism ends up as the progeny of like the, the decision to enslave African indentured servants instead of their white counterparts or their European counterparts. And uh, and it's the case that, am I right, before racism as we know it took root, the way of viewing the world was people as Christian or unchristian? Was that what Ira Berlin was saying? Yes. Yeah, that's one of the things he definitely, yeah, that that's sort of the the rationale or the division. But of course, that's too easy to change because you could just convert. This is one of the things that I hope uh, also listeners take away is just how contingent everything was and how everything is. And so one of the, you know, one of the problems, very kind of practical problems for large landowners was that there was not enough immediate land to give to indentured servants. And this was causing social pressures. And so you have like Bacon's Rebellion of indentured servants torching Jamestown <laughs> out of anger uh, because they can't get their land. If you're a large landowner, if you are a member of the House of Burgesses, you are thinking to yourself, how do we maintain our labor supply but also don't put too much demand on available land. Because if we try to take more land from, we might run into Indian tribes, we might end up provoking a war, and we don't want that either. And one solution is to say, okay, African slaves, if you convert to Christianity, it doesn't change your bond status. And that's a law that is passed. Yeah. Later laws include the child of, of an African slave is a slave themselves. And again, you see political leaders responding to these pressures by, by passing laws, by instituting uh, new norms, by encouraging new norms meant to kind of separate and stigmatize one group of workers until they are thought of as an entirely different class, uh, period. We don't know where Anthony Johnson was born or how he came to end up enslaved. We do know he arrived in Virginia in 1621, coming in on a ship called the James. His name was inscribed in the colony's records as Antonio, a Negro. You've chosen to tell this series through, different. every episode will be a different enslaved person. There's a good to that, but that also poses some challenges, it seems to me. You know, are, are there some huge issues you have to forego because it's not quite fitting in with the actual person that you want to talk about? Oh, yeah. You should have seen me trying to make up the list. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think initially I had 20 possibilities of people and narrowing them down was really hard. I'd say two of the things that I am you know, a little bit, um, you know, there's still a chance to work this stuff in sideways. But two of the major things that we don't have slated to talk about are the role of religion among enslaved people, mm-hmm. which is something that doesn't necessarily come up strongly in any of the people's lives that I we ended up picking. And another thing that I'm really interested in that I, I hope to write something about for the site, you know, as we're going through this uh, period of the academy is the relationship between Native Americans and slaveholding. So there's, you know, slaveholding Native Americans, especially Cherokees. But then there's also runaway enslaved servants who would meet up with Native Americans in swamps and sort of form these bands of resistance to the white colonizers. I mean, these are fascinating stories that um, we just didn't, you know, we don't have space for it. I'm fascinated about stories of uprising. I'm fascinated of stories of 
politics, the perhaps clever, you know, evilly clever ways that slavery kept perpetuating politically. I'm sure, Jamel, you're fascinated with that stuff. The rationalization, just the psychology of the slaveholder and the slave. I, I mean, I don't have, are you going to get to that? Yes. You know, we're talking about that sort of all along, but also I'd say especially in one of the episodes later in the series when we talk about scientific racism and the relationship between scientific racism and ideologies of slavery, which is sort of a later, you know, 1830s, 1820s, 1830s, 1840s episode. But that's a great one for talking about rationalization. <laughs> what enslaved person did you pick? How does the person relate to the, that topic of, the, of, ra- of scientific rationalizations? I believe we picked Anarka, who is a woman, an enslaved woman who has experimented on for, it was basically gynecological research in in New York. And I knew nothing about this. And this was a very fascinating story. Wow. What have you learned? Do you learn a lot, Jamel? One thing from this first episode, I believe, is just the the idea that there were points of resistance against sort of the stigmatization of um, African indentured servants, that there were, there were plenty of British indentured servants who saw these people as their friends, as their family, and and tried to keep the changes at bay, which which makes sense, you know, just kind of logically. But I it had never occurred to me. And Rebecca, what have you learned? Well, I'd say this process has been really good for me to sort of get a better geographical understanding of how how slavery worked. The idea that slavery had a frontier, <laughs> you know, that slavery sort of expanded and was different as it went westward. And that that affected the lives of the people who were both the people who were enslaved out west and also the people who you know were still in the upper south. Yeah, and some upcoming episodes are about the Middle Passage. We talk about an enslaved person who was involved in the cotton trade. And Henry Louis Gates will be popping up from time to time to talk about things, right? That's right. If you're worried, hey, is, it, is Henry Louis Gates not going to be there? No, Henry Louis Gates will be there. Don't you worry. <laughs> The official title of this is Slate Academy, The History of American Slavery. It's a nine-episode podcast series. There are archival documents, essays, and bonus podcasts. And the podcast will be discussions with leading scholars in the field and Slate's Rebecca Onion and Slate's Jamel Bowie, all available on Slate+. Plus. Thank you, Jamel and Rebecca. Thank you. Thanks very much. And now the spiel, Dolajal palette. White, I'm still white. Update, I colored with black crayons, but here's the thing, I used the crayons for outlines, and since the paper was white, I didn't engage in any of the out of the Crayola box coloring we're hearing about today. I was drawing self-portraits with the brown crayon instead of the peach crayon, and the black, you know, black curly hair, and you know, yeah, that, that, was, how, that was how I was portraying myself. So it started. I will now tell you two true things about Rachel Dolajal. One is the thing I got wrong yesterday. I said she was in charge of the NAACP in Tacoma. It is, of course, Spokane. Well, she was in charge. She's out now. Though the NAACP has said in interview after interview that they do not have a rule about ethnicity of their chapter officers. I still have gotten no response from an email I sent asking, are there any white officers? But that is one of the true things I want to say. She was in charge, used to be in charge of the Spokane chapter. The second true thing is more open to debate. 
But I want to put forth that I think there was a logical reason as to why Dolajal did what she did. Now, in the run-up to hearing her explanation, as it were, which is part of what we just heard in that clip from the Today Show, there was a lot of speculation as to her mental state. I would say that the speculation was actually an attempt to be responsible, not to be irresponsible. You want to give everyone the benefit of the doubt, but still you're diagnosing without having really met the patient. Here on CNN's Anderson Cooper 360 is Michaela Angela Davis. I think that she has some kind of mental disorder because of the degree in which she has, you know, created family members and probably created this hate mail story. So I think we're looking at an individual with some kind of racial or identity disorder, some kind of dysmorphia. And here's Mark Lamont Hill on that same segment. She may not be willfully making any of these choices at the level that we might that we might be attaching to her. Now, Dolajal might have a pathology. She might have insanity. But her actions in this matter adopting a black identity that's actually consistent with logic. It is rare that a woman, born Caucasian, born privileged, would choose to be black, would choose to be less privileged in the popular vernacular. But in rare cases, it makes sense. And to Dolajal, it made sense. The things she craved, respect, authenticity, being considered an insider, and clearing away that hurdle of suspicion, she could only claim that if she was black. For what she wanted to do, being white was more inconvenient than being black. Now, I know we say, and I know that it is true that black people in this country have it harder than white people. That is not just because of median income or education or other empirical measures. That's because of slavery and history and oppression and everything that started with the founding of this country that was written into the Constitution and that persists to this day. And so massive is the weight of racism in the USA that it seems impossible that anyone would want to make the conscious choice to choose to be black. But for Dolajal, it was conscious. I think she saw it as rational. You could argue it was rational, though it was unethical. And of course, the fact that one day it would lead to her unmasking, which is a term I use specifically, it would lead to her unmasking, meant that it wasn't really that smart. Dolajal worked with and worked in institutions where blackness, not whiteness, was privileged. Of course, that was an antidote to the surrounding cultural privilege. I know that. But her specific path, Howard University, the Africana Studies Department, the presidency of an NAACP chapter, credibility as an activist. Rachel Dolajal made the calculation that if only I weren't white, things would be easier. So she erased her whiteness, or at least she sought to. Now, as Jamel Bowie says in Slate, it's not okay because she could easily slip her skin when it suited her. Also, because she did not grow up as the great-great-granddaughter of a person who was once owned, but she grew up as a descendant of Europeans. And while immigrants, of course, had a tough road in America, it was a path of their choosing. White immigrants chose to come to America. And it wasn't that far ago. We're talking only five generations ago, right? Maybe great-great-great-grandfather, great-great-grandmother. So every African-American descendant of slaves has to, at some point in their family history, has to overcome a status where your birthright isn't property that you own, but it's property. It's being property. It's being owned. That may be obvious, but it's worth noting. Rachel Dolezal chose to be black in her mind to further a cause. But another way of saying that is, for her, blackness was a hustle. But it's not insane, and it's not inexplicable. It's just unusual, which actually is pretty usual when it comes to the tapestry of race and America.
that's it for today's show. producer andrea silenzi was once deeply involved with the episcopal society for yodeling and jazzercise managing producer joel meyer fronted the lutheran luncheon for organ music and ska executive producer andy bowers briefly involved with the unitarian children's congress of macrame and crunking we have a newsletter in fact it's just the show we'll email it to you and you can play the show off this email to sign up for that go to slate.com slash gist email you'll get our daily email every day it's a good way to know when the gist posts you could also follow us on facebook.com slash slate gist we do regret our prior endorsement of temple beth israel's committee on magic the gathering and ventriloquism thanks for listening And now I want you to check out this other podcast from the Panoply family. Some say they're the best. I mean, they're definitely top two. They do round up for you. Hi, I'm James Ledbetter. I'm the host of Inc. Uncensored, our podcast about business, startups, entrepreneurships, cool companies, and lots of other things. This week, we are going to be talking with Christine Ligorio Chafkin about... Silicon Valley's cult of disruption is coming to your dinner table. Diana Ransom on... Monetizing customer loyalty. And Will Yakowitz with... Vaporization company that landed $47 million from the likes of Fidelity. It was $46 million just a minute ago. All right. Uh, please yeah. listen to Inc. Uncensored, the best program on the Panoply network of otherwise very good podcasts. You can listen to them all at iTunes.com slash Panoply.